I moved to America when I was 25 and I just left everything behind and I came with two suitcases and I barely spoke the language. But it is such a liberating feeling to know that everything you need is inside of you. You don't need anything else. And I mean, only COVID could have given me this experience again so late in life at 44 years old where I was literally sitting in my apartment a year ago, not knowing if I'm gonna have a restaurant, not knowing how to pay for the bills for the business and coming to terms with the idea, I might lose it all and it's okay. And when you get to that place, and I hope I don't need to get physically to that place again, but I hope mentally, I can get myself into that space for many, many years to come because in that space, you're very free and you're able to make pretty bold moves without fear. That's Daniel Hume, and this is The Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. Okay, so what happens when one of, if not the greatest restaurants in the world, suddenly, seemingly out of the blue, goes 100% plant-based? Well, for perspective and context of the 132 three-star Michelin restaurants around the world, not a single one is vegan. So with that, most would say such a move is tantamount to financial suicide. But Daniel Hume, the world-renowned chef and owner of 11 Madison Park, sees it differently. He sees it as purpose-driven, mission-based, and the greatest creative challenge of his lifetime. A native of Switzerland, a former pro cyclist and a 251 marathoner, Daniel started cooking at 14, preparing exquisite meals in some of the finest Swiss hotels and restaurants before earning his first Michelin star at the age of 24. In 2003, he moved to the US to become the executive chef at Campton Place in San Francisco, where he received four stars from the San Francisco Chronicle. Three years later, recruited by Danny Meyer, Daniel moves to New York and becomes the executive chef at 11 Madison Park. And he revitalizes this restaurant so completely that in 2017, it was named number one on the coveted list of the world's 50 best restaurants. That's all amazing, of course, but the story really gets interesting when the pandemic hits. Like most restaurants, 11 Madison Park closed its doors. They did that for almost a year and teetered on bankruptcy. But it was during this time that Daniel, like many of us, started thinking more deeply about things like purpose, what he stands for, and how he could leverage this talent of his and the resources at his disposal to more meaningfully participate in solutions to things like food insecurity, the ills of animal agriculture, and more broadly, the inherent unsustainable nature of food systems. In a moment of clarity, he decides to make this crazy bold change first by converting his kitchen into a commissary and kitting out a food truck to provide free meals to food insecure New Yorkers. He partners with this organization, this nonprofit called Rethink Food, which is committed to creating sustainable and equitable 
food system solutions at scale. And finally, upon EMP's recent reopening, turns the most revered restaurant in the world plant-based, a restaurant where every meal enjoyed pays for five meals freely provided to those in need. And that decision, when announced, was like this bombshell, sending the food world into a frenzy. But Daniel's bet is paying off within hours of the announcement. 11 Madison Park booked a full month of reservations. And today, just five weeks later, the wait list exceeds 15,000 people. Brevity is not the soul of my wit today. I've got much more to say about the amazing conversation to come, but first. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment. 
so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. Okay, Daniel, so this is what went down. The day that 11 Madison Park announced its new menu, which was covered extensively in the media, I knew I immediately wanted to get Daniel on the show as soon as possible because my newsfeed was blowing up with people commenting about this incredible story. And my friend, past podcast guest, former food and drinks editor for Esquire, Jeff Gordonier, who had profiled Daniel for Esquire and the New York Times, uh, connected us. Daniel agreed to do the show but he made that agreement on one condition that I first dine at uh, 11 Madison Park. And I'm not one to say no to that. So I immediately booked my flight to New York City. I joined Jeff for said dinner, which was, I don't even know how to describe it. It was exquisite. It was divine. It was like this performance art, unlike anything I had previously experienced, a admittedly rare privilege. And the following day, I sat down with Daniel for the conversation you're about to enjoy. It's a conversation about why food at this level, food as curated experience, food as art is important. It's about what makes a great chef, a great restaurant great in the first place. And it's about what it really means to pursue a passion. It's also about constant reinvention, but more than anything, this is a conversation about personal evolution the search for meaning and purpose beyond accolades and what it means to mature your career and devote your talents into something mission-based in service to a better world. Daniel is remarkable. His story is wildly fascinating. And I don't feel it's an overstatement to say that he is now one of the most important figures in the plant-based movement. I believe 11 Madison Park because of its stature because of what this move represents and because of what Daniel imagined and is now creating is well poised to forever change the restaurant industry and also how people think about what plant-based cuisine is and can be. It was an honor to experience his talents. It was an honor to spend time with him and it's an honor to share our exchange with you. Special thanks to Joseph Hazan at Newsstand Studios and Rockefeller Center for allowing us to record in his facility. And without further ado, please enjoy me in conversation with one of, if not the best chefs in the world, Daniel Hume. All right. We're good to do this. How are you doing? Thanks for doing this today. I'm good. So, yeah. so happy to be here, yeah. Oh, that's very, very sweet of you to say. Um, I am thrilled to be talking to you today 
thank you for making the time and thank you for making room for me at the restaurant last night. Jeff Gordonier and I had an exquisite meal curated by you and your wonderful staff. It's a memory uh, that I won't soon forget. And it was really quite something. I have so many takeaways from the experience, not the least of which is coming into this realization that you as the chef and like the team leader, of course, the centerpiece of this experience is the food, but there's so much more that goes into curating this experience. You have to be this gregarious host. You have to be present with all of the patrons, despite whatever chaos is going on in the kitchen. And I noticed an extraordinary equanimity in your disposition as you greeted everybody and spent time with each of you know the patrons that had, you know, I'm sure looked forward to this experience. And it really um, belies the trope of the screaming chef and, you know, the chaos and anarchy that we've come to sort of believe to be the, uh, the rule as opposed to the exception. I know you had your moments in the past with that kind of behavior, but I didn't see any indication of that last night. No, I think, you know, when you, I think when you lose your cool as a chef, it is a weakness. And um, I mean, we've all been in this situation. We as chefs have all been in these situations mm. where we lose our cool or where we're in an environment where other people are losing their cool. But it is really a weakness uh, of the organization of the restaurant. And, uh, you know, today I think kitchens are far uh, far from that and mm. especially ours. I mean, it's pretty well oiled machine and we have so many talented people. So there's really no need for that kind of behavior. Right, if you have your management structure sorted out and you are being an effective leader, you know, from kind of a military perspective, then there shouldn't be those problems, right? If you're resorting to that kind of behavior, it means there's something broken in that chain of command. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. right. Yeah. That's exactly, and and you know, in fact, it, it's a shame that there are TV shows, um, you know, mm. portraying that kind of behavior because it's really not how yeah. it is. It's not. Yeah. No, you've had, you, you, you used to do a little bit of that though, right? Back in the day. I mean, you know, what is really difficult um, is when you're a young chef, it, to, to, to get to the top or to be recognized, you have to do it with a lot less resources than with, with the people you're competing with. Mm -hmm. Like today we have, you know, we, it costs a certain amount to eat at the restaurant. Yeah. Um, you know, people from all over the world want to work with me. Um, so we, we have so much going for us, but when you're young and you know, the, the meal can't be that expensive. No one knows who you are. So you're working with, you know, just whoever you find. And it's kind of like a smoking mirror kind of situation. Yeah. Uh, to, to rise up uh, up the ranks yeah and, and and so it's just a lot of pressure on on the individual who is trying to make sure. it mm -hmm. I want to get into the reinvention the reimagination of food all the exciting developments that are taking place at 11 Madison Park but before we do that I think it would be cool to spend a few minutes just talking about 
the importance of cuisine in general. And just by way of personal background, I'm a pretty simple guy. I'm a rice and beans and guacamole dude. Like I eat popper food. I've been plant-based for a long time. Yeah. My tastes are not that refined. I have had privileged experiences, a couple of eating at fine establishments, yours being certainly you know, one of them. I ate at Noma two years ago with Jeff. I've eaten at Larpege. So I've had those experiences, but I wouldn't consider myself like a gastronomist by any stretch of the imagination. So, and, and I think it's important to say like most people in their lives will never have the privilege of dining at your restaurant or a similar analogous type situation. So why, like, why is cuisine at this level important? Like, how do you think about food as art at the highest level and the impact that that has and the meaning that that carries throughout culture? Well, I think it's an art form. I've, I've always cooked in those restaurants uh, from the beginning of my career. I worked in these Michelin star restaurants. Mm-hmm. And for me, the way I've, I've experienced it was, was as, a, as a performance uh, and, and as an art form. And it's very much um, tied to culture, culture of the place. Like when you're working in a restaurant in France or in Italy or in South America, those experiences are very much different. They're very much tied to the place and mm. they're making references to, to the culture. Um, and, and of course, coming, uh, I, I grew up in Switzerland and um, fine dining for us was coming out of France, which is maybe even the birthplace of that kind of dining. Um, I think there's a beautiful culture tied to it. Um, and it starts from, you know, the farmers, um, the artisans who make the ceramics and the silverware and the glass blowing. Um, and then it's the people who make the linens. And then of course, uh, the team that works the floor and the way they move through the dining room. And then of course the chefs and then the recipes there inspired by um, that go way back sometimes. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, and I struggled with this um, many times in my life with the idea of how much it costs to eat at one of those restaurants. Because food is so magical on so many levels and food touches everyone. Mm. And to cook for an audience you know, of the 1%, that can be challenging sometimes. Um, But through the pandemic, somehow I found a whole new meaning in all of it. Like our restaurant shut down March 16th uh, of last year. And um, all we have left was an empty space, farmers with so much um, food uh, that was going bad and food insecurity that was, you know, doubling. And so we transformed 11 Madison Park into a community kitchen. Yeah, so you go from, in 2017, the restaurants rated the number one restaurant in the world on that coveted 50 world's best list. I'm sure with that, there's pressure to continue what you're doing the way that you're doing it. It's obviously working and it's attracting people from all over the world and, 
you're being lauded for it and you're getting all this attention. 2020 hits, you're forced to close the restaurant, you're facing bankruptcy. You make some interesting pivots during the pandemic year, but in 2021, you open as a 100% plant-based restaurant. None of the other of the 132 three-star restaurants are vegan. I mean, that requires immense balls to make such a bold move, but reinvention is really the touchstone of everything that you've done historically throughout, not just your career, but your life. Like you're constantly pivoting and iterating and challenging yourself to do something fresh and new. I think it's one part uh, for selfish reasons to keep myself uh, interested in it um, because I, I don't see myself doing the same thing um, over and over again. And especially after experiencing the pandemic, I definitely didn't want yeah. to go back to, to doing what we did before. Yeah. It seems like it's a, it's a bit of a, a reckoning. I mean, I think in the sort of hoity-toity high altitude of cuisine at this level, there's a lot of discussion and dialogue about things that are important within that subculture, but actually don't really matter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, They're nice, they're ego inflating, et cetera. But the pandemic, my sense is that it really compelled you to kind of confront your, your, your path in a very existential way and it provided you this opportunity to reimagine and infuse your talent and everything that you do with this extraordinary, you know, mission-based level of purpose and intention that can help people beyond the very few who can experience the food at 11 Madison Park. No, for sure. And, you know, in 2017, when, when we became number one, it was actually not such a great, it wasn't as great as one would imagine that feeling. It was actually coming with a, with a lot of emptiness. And, and maybe it has to do that this was a goal that we were chasing for so long, you know, probably for 10 years that that number one spot was mm. sort of our carrot that we were chasing. And, and you've done, you know, uh, marathons and triathlons and sometimes when you train a lot for an event and then you have the event and you're on such a high, it, you, you can kind of fall into a hole a little yeah. bit where you're a little depressed. Yeah. And I think that's definitely what happened to me um, after becoming number one. And I was looking for more meaning. I was looking for a higher purpose. And, uh, and then the pandemic hit and sort of, I, I realized that my language is, is food, is cooking. And actually food is, um, you know, food is part of everyone's lives, but food is so central to so many problems we're facing uh, on this planet. Food insecurity mm. being one, you know, global warming uh, and, and, and farming and, and, and so much more. And, and so I, I found myself in this spot of having this kind of incredible opportunity to actually say something through the food, to show a delicious way um, to cooking with only plants mm -hmm. and, and, and feeling that that could make a real difference. The precursor to this is this decision to open up 11 Madison Park as a commissary kitchen and start providing meals to the food insecure, right? And doing that in partnership with Rethink, which was founded by one of your former cooks, yeah. right? So walk me through that chapter. 
Yeah, so one of our cooks three years before the pandemic who worked with us, he said, hey, I see you're having all these uh, leftovers or these parts of like, uh, you know, we're only using the top part of a broccoli and the stem we don't use. And, and, and that is true to so many other ingredients. And he said, what if I would take all these ingredients and if I would have a little commissary kitchen and I would make meals out of these ingredients for people in need, would you be able to support me? So we founded together this organization called Rethink Food um, that was relying on restaurants supplying them uh, with their leftovers. And we did that and that was, um, you know, it was successful, but it was limited of how many Mm -hmm. meals we could really do. Mm -hmm. But then the pandemic hit and obviously all the restaurants closed and so the supply to our commissary kitchens to prepare these meals also stopped. And I just found myself in this position where I had this organization rethink, where I had an empty kitchen, a massive professional Mm -hmm. empty kitchen, where I knew a lot of cooks without jobs and where I knew all the farmers and producers sitting on food that they're not selling anymore now. And so we realized that we had to change what Rethink was. And we sort of started this program called Rethink Certified. And we allowed other restaurants, any restaurant, to use their kitchen and their staff and their farmers to produce these meals. And we as Rethink organization uh, are buying these meals from Mm -hmm. the restaurants. So actually restaurants were able to keep people employed, Farmers were able to keep supplying food and and people were getting fed. Right. Um, So that was a really pivotal moment. Uh, Changed the Rethink organization, but also changed my belief of cooking for the 1%. Yeah. Because cooking for the 1% allowed me to have this voice to be able to raise the funds we needed to be able to get other people on board. Um, And so I promised myself that if I would reopen 11 Madison Park, it would have to have a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. So today with every guest um, that comes to our restaurant, we feed five people forward. We actually started a food truck, um, the 11 Madison truck in partnership with Rethink where we have a hundred guests a night. We give 500 meals per day away for free in uh, communities of need. We cook the food in our own restaurant, our staff that also cooks the fancy meals. And then our dining room crew uh, that serves our guests in the restaurant also go out into these neighborhoods and delivering these meals. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of like a circular economy. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. The problem of food insecurity and the problem of food waste dovetail because the solution to one, to the former can be found in the latter in so many ways. And we are in this extraordinary predicament where you know more than 50 million people lack reliable access to nutritious meals. 70 tons of good food goes underutilized every year. If you talk to 
Paul Hawken, who wrote Drawdown, he will tell you that food waste is one of the biggest contributors to, to climate change. Solving this problem in your local community is one thing, scaling it in order to address the larger national and sort of international issues that relate to this is, is another thing. But I think what's interesting about trying to solve this problem, grappling with the solution, orients itself around communication and distribution. It's not, a, you know, food insecurity isn't by dint of lack of food, it's related to ineffectual distribution of the food that gets wasted in so many restaurants and homes every single day, right? But to go to a busy chef or a busy restaurant and layer on top of, you know, their impossible schedule, the idea that they have to prepare meals or set aside, you know, it's like you're creating a situation that's probably not gonna work, right? So what I understand about Rethink is training chefs and restaurants and creating systems through technology and effective communication tools that allow it to be seamless. So it doesn't create a burden on these restaurants. It just becomes part of how they operate. Is that a fair? No, I mean, what you're saying is, is absolutely accurate. It's about communication mm -hmm. and uh, there is enough food for everyone. And that's what's so heartbreaking. It is actually a problem we can solve. There is actually enough food. And, um, you know, the restaurant business is not the most lucrative business uh, to be in. And actually the goal of Rethink is actually that it's a benefit to the restaurant to get on board to be a mm -hmm. Rethink certified restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so talk about that a little bit. It's sort of like lead certification for restaurants. And yeah. I think it plays into this idea that especially amongst younger people, purpose-driven companies, organizations are, are really crucial in consumers making conscious choices about the companies and the businesses that they choose to patronize. Yeah, for me, really the light bulb went off right as the pandemic started and I decided that we would start cooking these meals. I, I went to different soup kitchens around the city to learn as much as I could how they were operating and you know, how meals are packaged and what were the meals consist of and what, what gets good feedback and whatnot. And I realized that all these soup kitchens were run by volunteers and uh, a lot of them weren't as well organized. They also didn't have the connection that we have uh, to, to producers and farmers. And so when we started producing these meals, I was shocked how efficient we were. We were able to produce 5,000 meals a day pretty quickly. Mm. Um, That's a lot of meals. We were efficient in time. We were efficient at price too. You know, we were set, we were told that a meal is probably five dollars per meal, and within a week, our meals were like around two dollars. Mm. So then I realized that every restaurant produces waste as well, like you said, and uh, I realized that the chefs and the restaurant have a responsibility and are in the center of this conversation because we're talking to farms every day, we're producing waste every day. We have talented cooks, talented team members. So the efficiencies in a restaurant are far greater than in, in commissary kitchens. And then restaurants also struggle often to pay, you know, their rent and their staff sure. and so forth. And so if the organization 
is already paying soup kitchens, they might as well pay restaurants. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a great benefit. Yeah, um, it gives them a base level of predictability in their income that can create like almost like a universal basic income for restaurants, right? If as long as they're providing this service, they know they can pay a certain percentage of their bills and keep the lights on. Absolutely. Regardless of how many people show up every day. Yeah, that was exactly the idea. You know, it helps for pay for the rent. It, it's, a, it's a consistent income. Um, no one knows better than chefs how to cook mm. delicious, inexpensive meals. Yeah. You were sharing last night a little bit about the impact of visiting these various neighborhoods around New York City and really being boots on the ground and developing a greater appreciation and understanding for how most people struggle every single day to get access to nutritious food. So talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I mean, it, it's shocking and it's unacceptable that in a city like New York City, that kind of poverty and not accessibility to food uh, is, is, is a reality. Mm. I mean, yesterday I went to visit the Queensbridge housing project um, because I'm really interested in, you know, we, me as 11 Madison Park, we can't change the entire world, but we got to start somewhere. So I'm really trying to figure out where would it be the most uh, meaningful. So I've been visiting different community centers, uh, different community leaders. I mean, the one thing that, that is so incredible, you know, and there are so many bad neighborhoods in New York and all over the country, but even as bad as they are, there are always these angels, these incredible people uh, mm -hmm. who are doing good, who are helping others. And sometimes you wonder, wow, where do they take this energy from? But it's just so beautiful. And, and mm -hmm. that has been consistent in wherever I have visited. Yeah. And yesterday in Queensbridge, I mean, this is a, six block radius, um, you know, square that has 69 apartment buildings that houses, you know, 12,000 people. And, um, you know, there's one little grocery store where the fresh food section is one little corner. Mm -hmm. I mean, just unbelievable. Yeah. There is no access to fresh food and it's 20 minutes from here. We're yeah. in downtown Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. So the solution rests in, I mean, you can, you can deliver meals, you can deliver food to these communities, but that's akin to a Band-Aid in the sense that rather than teaching them how to fish, you're providing a fish, right? So the, 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 the long-term solution rests in empowering these remarkable people in the communities, these catalysts, these lightning rods for change and providing them with the access and the tools that they require to empower their own neighborhoods, right? And so much of that I think can begin with teaching people how to grow their own food and leveraging all of the rooftops across you know, Manhattan and other urban areas across the country and the world to basically connect more deeply with the nutritious foods that they so desperately need. Yeah, I know. You're absolutely right. And that's what we're learning as well. You know, having this food truck in these neighborhoods, it is just like an antenna to gather information. And um, it, it is, although every meal really matters and people really rely on it, 
it is a band-aid. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the problems obviously go much deeper. Um, so we're really trying to figure out next steps. And one thing that we're in the process of is there's all this, you know, in next to uh, Queensbridge housing project, there are all these buildings yeah. with empty roofs. And uh, so we actually secured a four acre uh, rooftop space where we um, are in the process of building a rooftop farm and hopefully, um, you know, create a farmer's market um, for, you know, the housing projects where people can use their food stamps and prices are reasonable and then also have an educational uh, program. What's so beautiful about our industry, uh, the restaurant industry is that this is a great place for people to come to who, you know, didn't finish their schooling or, you know, need a second chance or, or, or even coming from a broken home. Um, the restaurant industry really allows for people to, to excel if they bring passion mm-hmm. uh, to, to the work on, it's a, on a daily basis. apprenticeship type career paths that still exists. You're right. It's it's a beautiful industry and many of us need it, you know, I've yeah. I didn't finish uh, high <laughs> school, school at 14. <laughs> We're going to get into that like left home at 15 it's bananas, right? And look at you. So there are many of us who who found sort of a home and and family in a way too mm-hmm. in our industry. So I'm very hopeful that you know we can attract some some talent from some of these neighborhoods. Um, also, you know, our, our industry is not the most diverse, which which is an issue. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm also very much thinking about that. And it's like, why is that? Because it doesn't actually make sense mm-hmm. at all. Mm. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof. And 
to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Let's talk about the pivot to taking 11 Madison Park plant-based. It's one thing to do rethink and deliver all these meals and be part of the solution of addressing food insecurity. How does that relate to this, you know, basically maverick in the food world decision to drastically alter your menu and go 100% plant-based? Yeah, I think, you know, the pandemic definitely gave us all time to kind of uh, take a step back and think about everything, rethink uh, everything. Um, and, uh, I sort of thought about you know what was really important to me and and what were the things that got me to this place and what got Eleven Madison Park uh, to this place and um, one of our one of my main inspirations 
is Miles Davis, um, who has been an inspiration for uh, over 15 years. And it kind of happened by accident, but it was in an early, early review. Right, a review said more, more Miles more Davis. Miles and you had to Davis. figure out what that meant. So we came up with a list of 11 words that were most commonly used to describe him among the words, uh, cool, endless reinvention, forward moving, light, innovative, and so forth. Is that the plaque that's in the kitchen that exactly, I saw last night? Exactly. Yeah, I was wondering where those words derive from. And they became kind of our mission statements. And two of those words, endless reinvention and forward moving, and just thinking about Miles, and, and he has been such a deep inspiration and it's been part of the success of, of, of the restaurant. So. What does this mean today? Endless reinvention and forward moving yeah. it obviously means we have to change. Right. It's like Dylan going electric. Yeah. Or Miles going electric yeah. when he did Bitches yeah, Brew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, if I'm considered an expert in food, if I'm truly at the forefront of dining and if 11 Madison Park is truly like one of the best restaurants in the world, you know, the as a chef, I've been cooking for 35 years. I've seen products disappear. I've seen the quality of products change. Um, you know, and some of the luxurious products even more so. And, you know, we are a luxury brand. That's just what it is. Mm -hmm. When I think about caviar, for example, and I think about that we are still celebrating that as a luxurious product, that is an old idea because caviar isn't wild anymore. Caviar is not rare, it's plentiful. You can find it everywhere. You can buy caviar at the airport and it doesn't even taste that good anymore. Mm -hmm. so it's all farm raised now, right? It's all, yeah. it's all farm raised and, and we're still holding on to this idea that this is one of the most luxurious product. That idea is broken. And so if I'm that expert and I'm continued, and I've been guilty for it as well, because we've still celebrated caviar when we already knew this, mm -hmm. but coming out of the pandemic. And I think part of the issue is that this is not just some artistic endeavor. This is our lives. This yeah. is how we make our money and we need guests. And so, 11 Madison Park is selling an experience. It's actually quite unique to other restaurants. And during the pandemic, I think that became clear to me that what we're actually selling is not the food that's on the plate. It's actually more like a Broadway show ticket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we have the unique opportunity to change people's ideas and thoughts and what they think luxury is. And um, I think my ambition was to create a meal that was as magical, as luxurious, as delicious as a meal was before, but without using any mm -hmm. animal products. Mm -hmm. And if we could do this, then maybe the in a few effect. years, a restaurant can charge more for a carrot main course or which today, you know, you still have to deal with the cost of the staff and the cost of the rent and 
And if you can only charge $20 for a main course because it's only plant-based, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I mean, a couple of reflections on that. First of all, you know, change requires change at the top and change at the, at the bottom. In other words, you need grassroots, groundswell, populist change, boots on the ground, but you also have to, at the highest level, set the tone for the rest of the culture. And you being in this privileged position where the decisions that you make and the menu that you arrive upon has influence and impact across the food world and then trickles down into culture. Like the power of that is huge to shift mindsets, change perceptions and create new trends. If he can do this and be so successful, I know when you made the announcement and you know, there was the food world just exploded with a million hot takes on whether this was a good idea or not. Um, but here we are, you're only like a month into the reopening and you've got a wait list of 15,000 people. I mean, the people have spoken. This is something people are very interested in. It's successful. And what does that mean in terms of how people are, are rethinking for themselves what great food can be and how we can tie great food to meaning and purpose in our own lives to forge the, the future of our imagination for the generations to come. And that's a beautiful thing. And at the same time, secondly, this idea of creating an experience, you know, I, I experienced it last night, yeah. it's unbelievable. Like everybody knows your name the minute you walk in, Jeff had a, a, an umbrella, the umbrella was taken. He, there's, no, there's no claim check, you know? And then when we left, they remembered to get him. <laughs> and Jeff was telling me stories about the dream weavers and the magicians and all these iterations of the restaurant over the years. I mean, you used to have a couple people kind of wandering anonymously, the floor semi eavesdropping on people. And when, when somebody would say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had this or, it's a bummer that our tropical vacation got canceled, that suddenly you would materialize this experience for people like magic, which yeah. is unbelievable to create that kind of experience for your guests. Yeah, it's, it's a really special place and it, it has gone through a lot of different iterations and it has constantly uh, evolved and, and, and moved forward. But it, it was always very much about the guests creating these magical moments uh, mm. for the guests. And now I think, uh, you know, it used to, at some point, the menu was all about New York and, and about all the artisans of New York and the products of New York. And of course, uh, many other chefs have championed uh, being local, but I think today local isn't enough anymore. Mm. And uh, so we need to know, we need to show a delicious way, uh, a luxurious way in a, in a different way. I, I compare it a little bit to, um, you know, when you look at the car industry and you see uh, when Toyota Prius came out with the hybrid car, I think it's more than 20 years ago, that was such a groundbreaking and incredible move and idea. And, uh, but, but it wasn't the most sexy car. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why it didn't really get the big traction at that time. And, uh, and, and it was really when Tesla started making luxurious electric cars that now the entire car industry uh, is transitioning. So, and that's from the top down. If Elon had introduced the first Tesla as an economy vehicle, I'm not sure it would have worked. His first car, was like a $250,000 roadster yeah. and they only produced a few. So the idea being create an aspirational brand, 
you come out with the luxury product first, over time with scale, you can create products that consumers can get more accessibly. Yeah, I think that's exactly, that was my thought a little mm -hmm. bit that that could have a massive, massive, massive impact. Yeah. Because we are going there actually. Right. It, it, this right, isn't. Right, right. It, it, so talk about that. <laughs> I mean, we still haven't gotten down to the nitty gritty of like why 100% plant-based? Couldn't you have a little fish? Why don't, you know, why is there a little, little bit of meat? Like, why are you so ardently doing this, you know, in this rigorous way? As somebody who's been plant-based for 15 years, I get it. I'm just interested <laughs> in like your, how you think about that for yourself. Well, for, uh, for us, it was just exciting. Uh, one part, it was exciting to challenge ourselves to that kind of level. Like in the, in the beginning, it seemed so daunting to let go of all these ingredients that we worked with for so many years and even ingredients that made our restaurant famous. Yeah. I mean, we perfected cooking the lobster mm -hmm. and the duck. Yeah, and like the, very rich food. Yeah, mostly rich food. Mm -hmm. But um, what I've learned is that by letting go of these things, today I feel so liberated in a way that I never thought was possible. As a chef, I'm more excited than I've ever been. Uh -huh. And I feel my palate of ingredients has only grown because before, in a way, we were stuck with these things. You had to have lobster, yeah. you had to have the duck, you had to have a foie gras. And, uh, and today we're, we're rewriting an entire new language. It's not clear what the main course is gonna be mm -hmm. or the appetizer. It's like the range of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's creatively inspired. I think there is something to this idea of constraints driving innovation in the way that an art, if an artist is restricted in their color palette or a movie director is suddenly, you know, suddenly facing budget cuts like those can, oh, we don't have 65 days to shoot this movie. We only have 28 and we're not gonna be able to get this or that. And you're forced within those constraints to come up with solutions. And so often those solutions end up pushing the art forward in ways that wouldn't have been possible without those constraints. So there is something about those boundaries, I think that really force you to dig deeper into your talent and come up with something new. And that's how we move culture forward. Yes. I mean, we're not anti-meat, but we are pro-planet. I think that's one thing. And, and if we can prove a way that you can be completely without, like for example, we feel like we've been working in food our whole lives and we're very creative with it. And where we apply our creativity, we want to prove a way to do it without animal products. If someone orders a cappuccino at the end of their meal, we're not going to lecture you what kind of milk you should drink. We'll have plenty of plant-based milks, but we'll also have the cow milk because our oh, we're not the food police. You're breaking my heart. I know, I'm sorry. But you made the most <laughs> unreal sunflower butter last night and those those rolls were extraordinary. I can't believe there wasn't dairy in those. I have to imagine that you could innovate in the plant-based milk space to come up with something that would soothe the palate and disabuse people of this idea that it has to be dairy in their cappuccino. We're definitely working you know, on all those kind of things. 
But we want to lift people up to come because most of our guests are not plant-based sure. it's, it's not a vegan restaurant for vegans. No. I mean, all the, the fancy vegan people are gonna come. I know they have been coming, yes. um, but that's not really the intention here. The intention is to, to change people's ideas right. of what it could be. And then people will look, you know, they will eventually make their own decisions that they don't want cow's yeah. milk in their cappuccino. Has anymore. anybody come to the restaurant who was not aware that you'd made this switch to plant-based and had some kind of problem or <laughs> <laughs> as, a, you know, as a difficult one percenter could be? Um, no, actually <laughs> we, we've been so blessed with so many excited guests. I mean, it's been, and in a way it's almost like, wow, really? Like everyone is liking it? Because mm -hmm. sometimes when you push creativity, I'm sure as you know, uh, to, to a really great place, it's not universal uh, sure. Uh, liked, um, but somehow this experience, somehow this has hit a nerve um, that was very timely and, and people are really responding extremely positively mm -hmm. uh, to this experience. And even the people who come in uh, with a lot of doubts, we, we definitely had some people who made the reservation before COVID mm -hmm. and have paid before COVID and we're honoring their reservation now, <laughs> but it's obviously a very different <laughs> restaurant. Yeah. Uh -huh. And some of those come in with, with a lot of reservations, but I, I, I feel like people are really, really leaving with uh, excitement. It's so cool, man. Yeah. Here's my theory. Let me know what you think about this. I think that you are on this spiritual journey towards self-actualization and deeper kind of integration within yourself. Like you realize that you possess a certain level of talent, a certain level of power, and the pandemic has forced you to try to find deeper meaning in that. And you've come out with this you know, marvelous thing that you're doing right now and based upon kind of what you shared last night about how you feel, like you feel lighter, you feel more directed, you feel more creative. Like there is something to that, you know, mystical energy of aligning your gifts with something more meaningful and purposeful that, you know, creates a more authentic being, like a more self-integrated individual. Like, and, based upon what you were sharing last night, like this is, I see this transpiring in you. And I think it's just, I think you'll continue on this journey. I'm interested to see where it goes, but how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about it from like a broader, more like mystical perspective? I know you're Swiss, you're very <laughs> precise and you know, you, you <laughs> so I don't know what your relationship I is. Don't know. With, with, uh, <laughs> I don't know where you're going yeah. with this, but I kind of do. You, know, you do, <laughs> the thing is like, that's what makes it interesting being Swiss. It must be confusing for you, right? So you I can't calibrate your watch to this. I know, no, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I definitely, you know, after, uh, reaching the mountaintop of becoming the best restaurant in the world, you know, at a pretty young age, I definitely ask myself a lot of questions and I've done a lot of soul searching and I've tried all kinds of things to, to, to soul search. Uh -huh. um, you know, I went to India um, for two months, uh, which was incredible. And I felt 
um, you know, it was challenging also. I don't know if you've been to India. But, I haven't, no, but my it, wife has. It, it's an incredible place and, and a challenging place and you feel completely out of your comfort zone, um, but it's it's extremely spiritual as well. And and I've I've done uh, I've done a, a few psychedelic journeys as well. Yeah. And um, you know, just searching um, for for more meaning and and for a fuller version of myself. And uh, I I think and and I hope it's just going to keep growing. But but today the work is definitely the most meaningful. Yeah. And it and it feels like so many parts of my life have led yeah. to this very moment. Yeah. You told me last night that you're almost quick to say that you're not vegan yourself, um, despite you know what you're doing in the restaurant. And I think I said something like, "Well, if you can, if you can, uh, you know, dispense with that, you know, disconnect. Like, if you can align your personal lifestyle with what you're doing professionally, I think you'll see an even greater kind of." growth or kind of celebration of what you're doing, but I think you'll also feel more integrated and purposeful in what you're doing. I think, I think you're probably right. Um, but the way I've always kind of let my life is more out of intuition mm-hmm. uh, rather than so much about what I'm thinking I should do more of my gut feeling. And I think this has all come from that place um, that I just felt like this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think my life just needs to catch up on. That's up what I think. With, I think it's, inevi- all of I think it's it. inevitable. It's, it's happening. That uh, instinct, that intuition will evolve as well. It, it's, it's absolutely happening. Yeah. I mean, even, um, you know, it, it would be strange for me at this point to, to, to eat a, a plate of meat. I haven't done it. And, right. and, and it's almost the body is telling me, you know, what the body's telling you what what's actually good for you. Yeah. Well, what happens is as you continue to evolve and grow, those things become less appealing and they just fall away effortlessly as yeah. opposed to like, okay, now I'm going to try really hard to do this thing. It just becomes incompatible with yeah. the way that you're living. Yeah, no, and you know, and it's uh I I do believe into talking things into existence. Um, when I have some big ideas, I just start talking about uh-huh. even before I even fully comprehend what what that means. I mean, to to it abandon, makes them real. It, it, yeah. it does make them real, but also, you know, it's a really scary thing. Change is scary for a lot of people, and I'm not in a, you know, I'm I'm in a team sport. Like there, mm-hmm. there is a whole army uh, to make this happen every day. And it's not just what's in my head, but it's like, I need to get everyone yeah. else on board. Right, like what happened when you told your investors or <laughs> like, this is what I'm gonna do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, here's- How's that go? No, there is, the, so our building, we, we have a lease in our building um, and uh, it's owned by two different landlords. I think when they bought the building a few years ago, it's like a billion dollar building or something mm-hmm. like that. And they're 50-50 partners. And one of the partners reached out to the other partner when they heard about my decision. And they said, well, do we have any say in this? Ask the <laughs> landlord of the building. Um, I mean, oh my God. it was hard. Yeah. Um, obviously yeah, they, yeah. they don't, but but people really, it it is hard for people to mm-hmm. 
to deal with change mm-hmm. and and our team as well i mean it was hard for um our our team yeah to deal with this yeah it's a big deal it's scary big deal. it's scary well you don't get to this point uh you know sitting atop the the pinnacle of uh, of cuisine in the manner that you do without being competitive like behind your you know very charming disposition like there's got to be a killer in there right yeah. like and you're somebody who who was a very good athlete like i'm interested let's go back cuz the origin story is crazy with uh-huh. you growing up in a household where you had a uh, you know a challenging difficult relationship with your dad your mom introducing you to food at a young age but walk me through what it was like growing up in Switzerland as a kid. Yeah, I, I grew up to, um, as the youngest child to my parents who were very young at that time. Um, my dad was going to architecture school, um, you know, super uh, detail oriented, um, but tough, tough, difficult dad and nothing was ever good enough. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it was hard. And I think that to the point where you said earlier, like when, when there's yelling in the kitchen, um, you know, there was yelling at home sometimes. And, and it was also because it was just, everything was overwhelming. I mean, my dad was like, you know, 21 years old and, and there I was born and he was also going to architecture school. And, you know, I, I, I think it was, it's difficult and, 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 uh, it, it, it was, uh, th- I started biking a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. first I- You were a runner first, right? First I ran and um, sport for me was sort of the outlet. I mean, the more time I could be out of the house, the happier I was. I didn't really love school that much, um, but I started running and I started running even as a young kid, like for miles and miles and miles. And uh, I competed in the um, in cross, cross country and that gave me uh, the opportunity to travel around, which was really exciting when you're like 10, 11, 12 mm-hmm. years old. Um, and, uh, you know, I was running, I, I won the nationals two years in a row and at a very young age wow. as, as a junior. Um, but then, and then even running wasn't even got me far enough. So then I started biking because then I could even travel, you know. All but the da- your dad wasn't giving you the love on the running? No love on the running. No love. No love on the running, you know, when, you know, I could come in first and his response would be, well, the best guys were injured or something like that. You know, the guys who would have won were injured. Uh, it was never really, um, yeah. the wins weren't really ever celebrated. <sighs> It's hard, sorry, man. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's it's it is interesting that you know I I didn't have that specific experience, but I did grow up underneath a, a dad who set very high expectations yeah. for me that I couldn't ever seem to quite you know yeah. satisfy, and I've had to do a lot of work around that to make peace with it. And I love my dad, and you know he did the best he he could, and he's from a different generation, etc. Um, but I think there's something about growing up with that kind of um, parenting or, or experiencing that kind of trauma that implants in you this competitiveness, like this drive to excel because you so desperately wanna be recognized and seen. And I feel myself to this day still, 
you know, I rely on that as a strength that can also lead me astray. Yeah. But it is in some respect, like a superpower that rests within me because that, that was born out of that type of experience. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my my yeah. dad's response to uh-huh. this. How good, it, you know, the good. <laughs> <laughs> right. So then you get on a bike and then it's freedom. I'm out of here. I could be gone like all day. Yeah, so I started racing and I started, you know, pretty much winning a lot of races mm. um, early. And uh, so I, I had the opportunity to leave school at 14 years old to really uh, become a professional cyclist to be part of a you know junior program mm-hmm. for a serious team and um and for me it was like a no brainer i could leave home and school it was like the greatest I, right i wanted to do yeah. it and so yeah that was amazing what and, dad think about that oh it, it was so tough um he didn't think it was a good idea at all but somehow i got away with it and and i, I went for it mm-hmm. and that I, I did leave school at 14 so that's the last formal schooling that you had. Yeah, I went to school for eight years of my life. Wow. Uh, and mom. I mean, she was crying when I was leaving home, you know, because uh, my mom, I was very, very close to her and she was sort of like magical and she cooked and um, spiritual as well. Like she's an artist. And, um, and for her, it was just heartbreaking. Um, for me to leave at that yeah. age. But, uh, you know, looking back, uh, it, it was the best decision. It actually suited me um, to go down yeah. this path. Are they still around now? Um, yeah. How's it, how's it going now? Well, my mom passed away, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. but my dad is around and, you know, I have an okay relationship. I, I think I agree. Um, I, I do love him too. And also he did the best he could. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's hard to when when you are not supported at that age. It's it's hard to ever fully come clear yeah. with it. Yeah 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 yeah. It's tough. So you you leave home at fifteen. Yeah. And that was it. No. You're gonna go be <laughs> a bicycle racer. Yeah, it was which amazing. you did for many years, right? It was amazing. Yeah, though. I got to see you know all of Europe and. Uh-huh. Um, it taught me so, so, so much. And I would never be the chef today um, if I didn't have that as, as, as a yeah. background. As an athlete, you know, yeah. like there's so many setbacks and, you know, it is so tough and so competitive. And there's this romantic idea around being a, a cyclist, a professional cyclist, but the reality is so brutal. There is no glory. You're making no money. Yeah. You're living in. Your Belgium or something, and the racing in the middle hotels. of the winter and <laughs> <laughs> terrible weather and yeah. freezing all the time. Yeah, you know, eating ramen or whatever, barely making it enough to to scrape by, and always worried about getting cut from the team. Right, getting cut from the team. You know, injuries are all the time. Mm-hmm. Right, crashes, injuries. It's just, um, yeah. Eventually, I I had a I had a bad accident. I was 22 years old and and um and that kind of put everything in perspective for me right. and I'm in a way grateful to that accident um because I was in the in the hospital for weeks and and I realized that this isn't going anywhere. I I was not on the path to be Lance Armstrong mm-hmm. and there were only like two or three guys 
on that level who actually made a living yeah. from it. And uh, and that wasn't something uh, that was in the cards for me. And, you know, we also know about those times in cycling. Uh, so it was just that kind of environment that was very challenging and difficult. Yeah. And, and it actually only worked for a few and, and not even in the long run. Yeah, I mean, you have these very interesting inflection points throughout your life that are all defined by these 180 pivots that you make from leaving home at 15 and saying, I'm not doing school anymore to having the self-awareness as a young person. I mean, how old were you then? 18 or 21 or something like that? When you had that crash? 21. 21, right? To say, this is, this is not gonna work and I'm gonna completely let it go. Yeah. Um, that requires a certain level of maturity, you know, to do that. It would have been easy to just keep going and let it play out to its, you know, inevitable conclusion. But to say I'm pulling out of this and I'm going to go in a completely new direction. I think I'm I think just that up. It's the same <laughs> thing when you decide to make Eleven Madison Park plant based, like these very, like hard line in the sand, you know, switch ups. It's so liberating when you when you do though, and it it comes when I moved to America. I, I moved to America when I was twenty five, and I, I just left. It was kind of the same similar moment where I just left everything behind, and I came with two suitcases, and I barely spoke the the uh-huh. language. But it is such a liberating feeling to know that everything you need is inside of you. You don't need anything else, mm-hmm. and. I mean, only COVID could have given me this experience again, so late, you know, late in life at at 44 years old, where I was literally sitting in my apartment a year ago, not knowing if I'm going to have a restaurant, not knowing how to pay for the bills for the business and, and coming to terms with the idea, I might lose it all. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that place, and and I hope I can, I hope I don't need to get physically to that place, you know, again. But I hope mentally I I can get myself into that space uh, for many many years to come. Because in that space, you're very free, and you're able to make pretty bold moves uh, without fear. Right but you did your your work like you've been doing push-ups all along right like you've made these pivots in the past you've taken these risks it's worked out for better or worse each time so when it comes to you know making this big more recent decision that you've made you already have that life experience of knowing like this is the only way because this is the way I've always done it yeah. and somehow it always works out maybe not in the manner in which i imagine or on the timetable but Short of doing that, you rob yourself of the magic that can transpire by, you know, deciding to incur that kind of risk. Yeah, I think it only always works out, not because there is this, you know, success that's by your audience, but it's the success that you do what's in your heart. Mm-hmm. And that's why it works out. Like when you do what's in your heart, then it's the right decision. It doesn't matter if it's critically successful or not, but if you continue to follow your heart, I believe that gives you freedom and yeah. that, you know. Yeah. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? 
what is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So in the wake of the bicycle accident at 21, walk me through the introduction to food and that becoming like your, your path. Well, as you said, as a cyclist, you don't make a lot of money and I didn't either. Mm-hmm. And so actually at 15, when I decided to go uh, pursue cycling as a profession, uh, my dad said, okay, you can do this, but you have to move out. I'm not supporting this. And I said, okay, um, not even fully understanding what that meant, but you know, I had to get a job. Uh, So when I wasn't training or traveling for races, I had to find a job and the only place I could get a job was in a kitchen Mm -hmm. at 15 years old. And I was really lucky that I found a place with a chef that became my mentor and uh, it wasn't just a job, but he took it on him to teach me. And comes so like a father figure. It was like yeah. a father figure. And by the time the accident happened, I've actually already cooked for six years. And my mom was an excellent cook and even more so she, she, she really put a lot of value on the ingredients. Like we got all of our vegetables from the farm Every, everything from the farm, like fresh milk every day. She would bake her own breads. Uh, we would pick our own salads in the fields. And, and so, you know, as a kid, that was annoying, but because so much work to prepare mm-hmm. the meal, but it gave me this understanding of mm-hmm. what a great ingredient was. So in a way I was set up for it without even knowing, I never thought I would pursue cooking mm-hmm. as a career. But when I was in the hospital, 
And I thought about the cycling. I actually didn't like cycling as much anymore. It just became something so different. It became so, so, so competitive. And uh, it wasn't enjoyable. And when I thought about where I found pleasure was when I thought of the moments in the kitchen. And then I thought, well, I should just do that. Mm -hmm. And if I can't become the best cyclist in the world, maybe I can become one of the best chefs. Was that a very concrete decision that you made? Like, did you have awareness that you were making that kind of pivot and refocusing all of your intentionality into this? Okay, okay, I was all in on cycling. Now I'm going all in on this. Yeah, this, this happened in one day. Wow. This was one moment when uh-huh. I made that decision. And then um, one of my uh, trainers was close to this restaurant that had three stars. Uh, I was in the French part of Switzerland and we ate there once after a race and it was so magical. Like we, we sat in that kitchen and that was actually the first time I saw cooking on, on this level. That was actually, that kind of planted the seed that cooking could be a sport or a, a, a career. But mm-hmm. we were sitting in the middle of this three Michelin star restaurant. Uh, it was called Freddy Chirardet. And uh, there were like 25 chefs working all around us, like similar to what you saw last night at mm-hmm. our restaurant. But everyone had perfect starched uniforms and big toques, the hats. And uh, they were serving us the most incredible meal and and they were working in harmony and it was like watching a ballet. Mm. And sort of that planted a seed. And uh, yeah, I was in the hospital and I called my coach and I said, do you remember that dinner we had two years ago? Can you call that guy? I wanna work there. Mm. And he said, what? He's like, well, I, I don't want to race anymore. <laughs> yeah, bearing the lead. <laughs> <laughs> and he did it. And he, he did it. Uh-huh. And three months later, I had a job. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And is that the restaurant? What was the restaurant that you were working in when you had the, the accident en route to the farmer's market at like three <laughs> in the morning? <laughs> that, was, that was later, right? That was later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was a few years later. Um, I was working in this little restaurant. That was actually my first place where I was the chef. And um, I was 25 years old and uh, I would go to the market every morning to Zurich. It was an hour away and this was in a mountain town. And one morning there was so much snow and I was so tired, probably slept four hours and I got up at five in the morning to drive to Zurich. and. Yeah, and the car just went out of control and and I was slitting down this, you know, hill and I hit a tree and I was super lucky that there was a tree. Um, right, because short of, you angled the car towards the little twig of a tree yeah. because short of that, you were looking yeah. at an alpine cliff that it would have certainly it, met your death. Yeah, it would have killed me. Wow. And then I called the farmer of this place and he came with the tractor and he pulled me out. Right, like the thing <laughs> being like, man, I need to reassess my priorities. Instead, you're like, I gotta get to the farmer's market because yeah. the restaurant can't operate unless I get there and get the stuff. Like the level of obsession 
at that moment in your life, layered on top of which you've got a very complicated personal situation. You, you had a kid at 18, right? Like you had a, an older girlfriend who then left you, which you know, the pain of that forces you to just go all in on career. I won't be hurt. Nobody can abandon me. This yeah. is the one thing that I can control and just literally becoming obsessed. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. It's not always healthy, but um, it definitely um, pushes you. It definitely, um, yeah, you know, you, you have to push yourself to extreme levels to reach the success and, and that's what you learn in sports, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's 100%. not who is the most talented, it's like who, who can hurt the most actually. Well, especially in cycling. Yeah. Because nothing, <laughs> there's no sort of self-inflicted suffering can be experienced like it can be on a bike. Yeah, no, yeah. that's right. And you learn that, right? But this then gets channeled into this discussion around passion. Like we live in a culture, it's like chase your passion we should all live passionate lives. and. What I love about the way that you think about this is is the fact that it's filtered through the German definition of passion, this idea of Leidenschaft. So explain that because I think it's really profound and it's so much of a better way to think about this type of lifestyle. Yeah, no, in in German, uh, the word passion is Leidenschaft and and Leiden is actually suffering and um, and shaft is sort of like in enduring, you know, endure suffering or, or being willing to suffer for something because that's really passion. Otherwise it's just like a hobby. But if you're passionate about something, you know, are you willing to mm-hmm. suffer for it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And the suffering will will inevitably come. It will be visited <laughs> upon you, as you know, because doing anything well is fucking hard. And if you wanna be at the highest level, prepare yourself. Like there just aren't that many people who are willing to kind of endure what it's going to take to get to the, you know, the peak, whether it's in cycling or running or being a chef or any other goal or dream that you're chasing. That's yeah. just the truth. But it's, you know, it's the journey that is beautiful and, and there is suffering, but there's also so many, beautiful parts and, and the moments of suffering make the beautiful moments sure. so much You can't more. have one without the other. That's exactly right. You, know, you can't. And, and even with that, like when you were talking about reaching number one and you think, oh, I've been vying for this for a decade and then it gets there and it's, you find it lacking in yeah. the satisfaction that you were expecting. And that's always the case, right? Because the value is in the endeavor. It's in the getting there. Yeah. It's in the journey undertaken. It's in the hardship and the struggle and the suffering, the you know Leiden shaft that is packed yeah. into trying to you know aspiring to that place. Yeah. It's not the arrival. The yeah. arrival is a footnote. The journey is over. Mm. Kind of when you're right, right? And, and and then you're there and yeah. you're like, <laughs> now what? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's a scary place to be. Yeah. Short of you figuring this out for yourself, like short of COVID kind of compelling this introspection on your level, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened. It was difficult. Like I know COVID has been devastating and and obviously super painful for a lot of people and a lot of loss Mm -hmm. and it's devastating. But in in my case, it's it's really, I, I found a lot of positive 
in it. And before, you know, now, before I was this chef that was named number one at some point and, you know, the reservations were booked and booked and booked and booked and, and uh, I became more, more of a brand than, than a person. Mm -hmm. And uh, so many of my partners wanted to monetize this brand. Um, you know, people saw opportunities um, to open different concepts, um, you know, casual concepts, alignment with brands and all this kind of stuff. And, and I started completely losing myself. I, I wasn't even in charge of my own schedule in a way anymore. It was just like, I was this, you know, face of this brand that, you know, that uh, a lot of people were interested in, but I wasn't. And so it was really challenging. And when everything fell apart uh, during COVID, I, I was really able to cut ties with, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of partners, a lot of projects. Yeah. In a way that I don't know if it would have been possible. Yeah, otherwise. I mean, you know, your entrepreneurial journey is fascinating as this hybrid of of how do you blend art and commerce in a way that is successful. It's a, you know, it's a difficult recipe to get correct. You've had all of these successes along the way and all these different kind of incarnations of partnerships from, you know, Danny Meyer originally bringing you into 11 Madison Park in, in, in the first place. And then you and Will Guadara, is that how you say his last mm -hmm. name? Um, kind of purchasing or Danny selling you the restaurant mm -hmm. and then you having this partner and, and this fruitful partnership with this guy in which you create all of these amazing opportunities, but ultimately your life scales out of control, right? You become a brand, you become a licensing vehicle. Yeah. And then to cut ties with all of that and narrow you know, your focus to just literally this one, like let go of the hotels and all the kind of stuff. Yeah. Just say, I wanna get back to the one thing that I, that I love that gives me creative sustenance is a bold move in and of itself. And now here you are, like you have investors, but essentially you're the proprietor and sole you know, owner of this restaurant. You've got one in London as well, but to have the, the kind of sensibility to say, bigger isn't necessarily better. It's moving me away from what I'm actually seeking. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that all associations, partnerships, in, in my case, I think, or most of all were, were actually needed and, and beneficial and, and, and it got me to this point. I mean, it's, it starts with even just in a restaurant when you think about the need for guests. In the beginning, you need to kind of cook the food that guests will want and will uh -huh. pay for. And then only slowly you can kind of come into your own and you can add some creativity yeah. to it. And I tell you what you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, a little bit. They right? don't know what they want. <laughs> That's my job. But we, we are still doing it today. I mean, today we're cooking completely plant-based. Mm -hmm. People don't even want, you know, know that they would like that. But, but the meal starts with this, you know, essence of tomato. Right. This simple tea of tomato that is sort of like disarming. And no matter who you are, 
you're, sh- you're, you're shocking people into, you're giving them the sense like, this is gonna be unlike what you expect it to be. Like I, when it's placed down in front of you, there's no explanation of what it is. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is a tea or we're gonna cleanse our palate and get ready. And then you take one sip and you're like, whoa, I've never had anything like that before. Certainly you taste the tomato, but clearly it's a distillation of, I don't know how many thousands of <laughs> tomatoes are <laughs> compressed to get like that density of flavor into this clear broth. Yes. And inevitably you think, okay, this is gonna be a ride like no it's, other. It's intentionally very simple, easy to digest and very, very delicious. Mm-hmm. Universal, delicious. And so it's then then we can take people on a journey. Then they're like, it's kind of like a hug. Yeah. It's like it's going to be I a great you. meal. I trust exactly. You. Yeah, and that's with the cooking, and that's with partnerships. Like, I've needed certain partners to understand how business works in America. I had mm. no idea. I came from Switzerland. I left school at fourteen. Do you know? And now right. I'm running an empire <laughs> here in New York City. I mean, it really is fucking crazy. You know, I needed yeah. these uh, steps, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, if you get to the place and, and proudly I can say, I don't have an investor anymore. Mm. And, and it took years, wow. I'm 44 years old. And You're the, the sole owner. Yeah, I could have, yeah. this decision to go plant-based, I don't think, I don't know if there's an investor out there who would have said, oh, this is a great idea. We yeah. just had COVID. Now <laughs> go plant-based, <laughs> you know? I don't know if that right. investor is out uh, there. That's liberating though. It's liberating. You know, land, you got landlords and all that, but yeah. you know, yeah. wow, yeah. it's pretty cool. What is in your mind, the distinction between good and great with food? Like there are plenty of good chefs what goes into being a great chef for people that aren't steeped in, you know, this type of this world, this subculture? Like, how do you think about that? That's a big question. Uh, I think, you know, foremost, it's. Uh, I think cooking is is a craft, and um, you know, I think there are amazing, amazing restaurants um, where you just go and have an amazing meal with amazing sourced ingredients prepared in a beautiful way. And then in, 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 in rare cases, it kind of can transcend that. And, um, and it, it can actually add something. I talked about culture earlier, how fine dining is, is, is a big part of culture and, and, and the language of sorts. Like, you know, we know that the, the, mm-hmm. there are a lot of different languages, the, the languages of politics and the languages of art and different kinds of arts. And I think there's a language of food. And I think chefs through history of time have, you know, when you think of Alice Waters, um, I don't know, it's, it's in the seventies probably when she, you know, really made yeah. a big stand on local food that was groundbreaking and, and it was, um, it, it really changed culture, it changed, it changed America. And, and there's been other chefs, you know, in history of time before. So I think very rarely there's someone that comes along and that really can make that kind of, right. that kind of impact. Is it an intangible, like I know it when I taste it or see it or feel it, or are there criteria? Like when you sit down at a restaurant and you're surprised and you're like, this is great and this is great, 
because X, Y, Z? Like, can it be distilled down into variables that you feel are important ingredients in making a, making a proclamation that a certain chef or a certain restaurant, you know, stands or sits above its competitors? To me, it's like when it's bigger than the restaurant. To me, it's, there is the craft. And when you're in a restaurant of great craftsmen and great chefs, then you're in the restaurant and you taste it and you see the attention to detail and the way the flavors are mm -hmm. balanced and it's harmonious and all that. And then there are a few restaurants um, where it's bigger than the restaurant, where it's about something bigger. And, you, and that's just the feeling. And that's just when it's like almost like a Gesamtkunstwerk mm -hmm. where everything is from the place to the people, to the education of the people, to the plateware, to where it's this mm -hmm. one idea of a Gesamtkunstwerk. And then it can really um, make real big impact that will trickle down to all kinds of industries. Yeah, there's the, you know, hero dreams of sushi type mastery. Yeah. And then there's the kind of orchestration of scaling up that mastery to cultivate an extraordinary experience, yeah. right? Yeah. It's interesting. It's something that I think, you know, to kind of pivot back to the mystical a little bit, uh -huh. there's a saying, I was talking to Jeff about this last night, I'm long time in recovery and there's an adage in Alcoholics Anonymous that you, you can't transmit something you haven't got. Like you have to carry the vibration within you to be the lighthouse that will attract the energy into your life that you aspire to have, right? You can't fake that. Like no. you're either living it and you're being it or you're a pretender. And yeah. increasingly, I think people, their antennae for like what is real and what is authentic has never been more finely honed. Like we can all see mm. bullshit coming a million mm. miles away and we can all identify when something is real or something is different or carrying that vibration that we wanna be around, you know? And I think the more that you instill that in yourself and in the culture that you create in your kitchen, you know, the more that that will resonate out into the world and attract those kind of people into this mission that you're on of, you know, transforming food insecurity. I think that's really well said, and I think I think so true. I think authenticity, it, you you feel if it's authentic yeah. or not. Yeah. And I think you know, the one thing I do believe though is that if if you do not perfect the craft, you will never get. You're, you're, yeah, it's lost, right? To the next. You, and you can't. There's a lot of people who break rules, but they they never took the time to master the craft itself yes. and really understand the rules. Like you can't paint outside the lines until you really know how to paint, you know, with mastery within the lines. Yeah. That's why, you know, art is such a great inspiration to me. And, and uh, I, you know, most of my friends are, are painters or sculptors or dancers. And um, it, it is so interesting when you follow, for example, Mondrian, most people know, you know, Mondrian, one of the first abstract painters. Um, but when you look at his early paintings, they weren't abstract no. at all. Yeah. They were landscapes and 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 beautiful ones. But then at some point, he 
became Mondrian. Right, it's always amazing to see early works of some of those more modern artists who are doing radically different things and to realize like, oh, they actually, they can do it the other way. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's right. That makes you it know? brilliant, right? Right, yeah. right. Well, art has been so um, crucial and influential in how you think about food and just the restaurant experience in general. So talk a little bit about that influence and also how it's kind of informed some of these pivots, you know, specifically going from this very, um, I wouldn't say sensory overload experience, but you know, kind of a, a, a robust sensory experience to mm -hmm. trimming things down into a more minimalistic approach. I've heard you talk about minimalism before. I would characterize it more as essentialism, yeah. like getting rid of anything that's not informing, you know, the experience or the art that you're trying to share. Yeah, I think that's really good observation. I I, I actually call it elemental, mm. like where everything is there that's needed, but nothing. Right, nothing, that isn't. nothing extraneous. Yes. For me, when I was 12 years old, I had my first real experience with art and my parents took me to the Lorangerie in Paris. And, you know, that's where uh, it's the museum where they hold the, the, the large Monet water lily mm -hmm. paintings. And it's sort of these two oval rooms of just Monet water lilies. And as a 12 year old kid, um, you just feel like you're totally wrapped into these paintings. And uh, for the first time I had this experience when I, I didn't know how I was feeling. Did I, was I happy? Was I sad? It was really bizarre. I was like very emotional. And since then I knew that art was speaking to me and was really uh, important to me. Mm -hmm. And I think um, forever since then, I've, wherever I go, I visit artist studios, I go to museums, I go to galleries and uh, I read about art. And I think uh, I had another really meaningful experience and that was probably at the age of like 24 when I saw for the first time, I saw Lucio Fontana, mm -hmm. um, these paintings where he, it's just a canvas, a white canvas, and he took a knife and he just cuts through the canvas. Yeah. And a friend of mine took me to see that show and said, hey, this is a really important artist and you should you know, really dig in on him. And I didn't really understand like, it at what the first. fuck is this? Exactly. He literally took a knife and slashed the middle of a white canvas. But my friend was very knowledgeable, so I trusted him. And, and you know, in the next few weeks, I, I tried to understand why this painting was so important. And it's exactly to the point that you said, because he was, Fontana was, while well, a great sculptor, he worked in ceramics, but he could also paint anything. I mean, he was just a really accomplished artist. And at some point he decided that he would just cut the canvas and that's his masterpiece. And uh, that painting in fact changed art forever because with that one slit in the canvas, he questioned everything that sort of was there before. Like, does a canvas need to have a painting? Is art on the canvas? Could the canvas be the art? Could the artwork be behind the canvas? I mean, he questions everything. Is painting sculpture? Or is the art the conversation around the work itself? Yeah, as well. Yeah. So taking that, like, what do you make of that 
for yourself? Like, why was that so impactful so, to you? And how does that get channeled into how you think about food and the experiences that you're providing? The more I thought about that work was, he changed art forever with a very minimal gesture. And for me, that was just so powerful and so mind blowing. And so this is how I wanted to cook. I wanted to cook very minimal, but say a lot. And uh, I realized that that was a lot harder than, than it seemed because the gesture has to be so strong and uh, there is nowhere to hide. Mm. And as a young chef, often I had two ingredients on the plate and I was like, uh, that's not a complete dish. No one would think that's great. So then I added things. I said, oh, I need another puree, another ingredient, another texture. And uh, it became more complicated. But at that point, you know, guests were reacting to this more than they would have with two ingredients mm -hmm. on the plate. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time for me to get to the place where I could have two ingredients on the place. And it probably only happened um, like four years ago. Right, in the way that, was it Alice Waters who would just say, here's two dates on a yeah. plate, that's it. It takes a lot to <laughs> yeah. get there. It takes a certain level of, of audacity. Confidence. Yeah. yeah. But you're not lacking in confidence. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if that's a compliment, it, you know. Um, but on this, no, I mean it. It, it, it's. I guess you know, courage is probably a better word. Like to say, I have you know a strong enough sense of self and what I'm doing that I can put this out there, and maybe not be certain, but have some level of confidence that it will be received because it's backed up by this lifetime of experience and this trust that you've engendered over time. Is that accurate? How does that one feel? <laughs> no, I just back myself into a corner. You know no, what I'm saying? It, it it takes a long time to um, you know be very simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's reflected in the in the the Rita Ackerman painting in the restaurant, right? The chalkboard painting that's very stripped down. That's on one far side of the wall, hanging hanging high up that kind of, to me, symbolizes like, we can always erase this and start fresh or new. Like nothing is permanent. It's a reminder, like this is a process. Yeah, it's like uh, Picasso said, you know, a painting is, uh, is never finished, it's only abandoned. Yeah. And I think that's true. That's true of everything. Yeah, that's right? true. Of Whether everything. you're writing a book or you know, preparing meals. I mean, the, the difference with cuisine, yes, there's this constant every day you're doing it, it's evolving, it's an organic living, breathing thing. But each meal in and of itself is almost like a Zen mandala because it will be consumed and destroyed. Yeah. What's hard it's in impermanent. our- impermanent. Yeah, it is impermanent. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's an artist called Andy Goldsworthy which we're very inspired by. And he, he works in nature a lot. And, and uh, he, he makes like sculptures out of icicles and, you know, he builds them and then the sun comes. Right, and, and they're gone. And they're gone or he ties these leaves together and he lets them run down the river and it's so beautiful, but it's impermanent. Uh -huh. 
Um, it's hard to, it's beautiful because I think a lot in life, the impermanent things make it magical. Um, but as a, as a creator, it's also difficult because, you know, you had dinner there last night yeah. and uh, there's someone else gonna have dinner there sure. tonight and, and we have to recreate that moment yeah. uh, over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. Do you think about the kind of mystical aspect of like putting things inside of people's bodies? Like I've created this thing, it carries a certain vibration, a certain vitality other people are consuming that and then they're going out into the world, this sort of diaspora of human beings who are yeah. carrying that vibration. I mean, Jeff was talking last night about the first time he ate at the restaurant and you know, as a longtime food critic and writer, he's used to going to these restaurants and they kind of just give him a million dishes and he rolls out of there and he feels like shit, you know, even though the food is wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the case of 11 Madison Park with the new menu, feeling like vital and elevated for he said like a couple days, yeah. you know, even though he's not like, he wouldn't consider himself plant-based. I think he's, you know, playing around with that in his idea, but there is something to that idea of, of you are providing a certain wavelength of energy and putting it into other people's bodies. And that has like, that activates people and puts them on their own kind of journey of exploration, their own like trajectory of like learning and exploring and growing and evolving. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, humbling to to know that you know what we're creating um, people are 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 eating ingestion. Yeah. And uh I think there is it's really interesting even beyond our knowledge of what's actually happening um during this meal like we it's it's a fully plant-based meal but we're working a lot more with with different cultures, and that actually, you know, when we talk mm-hmm. about removing a lot of ingredients of animals, the one ingredient that came up a lot was the ingredient of time, like the time it takes to ferment something, or you know, we're working on all kinds of different fermentations of sauces mm-hmm. and shoyus and. You know, you get an like a soy sauce. It's like gives you an idea, but there there are so many. Uh, it's endless. It's what endless you what that. you can yeah. do, uh, not from soy, but from so many other things. And when we removed meat, we felt like we wanted to um, still have a meal that is balanced. Of like where there are some dishes are more light, some dishes are more. I'm gonna use the word meaty, but richer. Mm-hmm. And so umami uh, is definitely very central in this cooking. We also worked with these Buddhist monks who are uh, cooking a cuisine right. called shojin. Mm-hmm. And uh, we learned about the ingredient of time. We learned about using different cultures in different uh, dishes, like cultures, like like from, uh, yeah, different, uh, you know, we ha- we're working with a lab called Kingdom Culture, who they have a library of cultures from around the world, from like sauerkraut or mm. kimchi or... Cultures, you, you, you mean not populations of people, you mean literal like biological cultures, biological. right? For fermentation. Yeah, Thank yeah, yeah. You. yeah. And, uh, and I think it affects people. I think during yeah. a meal, having eating these biological cultures, 
uh, is affecting people almost to a place where people feel euphoric in a beautiful way. Yeah. And I think that's what Jeff is, is sort yeah, of talking yeah, yeah. about. And we don't even fully understand. I think Michael Pollan said that, you know, we know the body so well, uh, many parts of the body we know so well, but actually what's happening in our gut, our, our knowledge is, is so limited. Right. It's like, um, so I think there, there's a lot of work that's still yeah, it's gonna happen. Yeah, it is this uh, amazing amalgam of all these different influences and cultures. You mentioned um, the Japanese tradition, Buddhist temple food, ideas from India, China, Nouvelle cuisine from France yeah. in the 70s, Boulay, Patterson, um, Passard, like all of these influences being kind of hybridized and um, uniquely uh, kind of through your, you know, unique perspective, creating something new yeah. out of all of that. The host last night was um, sharing about the, the grinding of the, <laughs> the, uh, the sesame seeds every yeah. day yeah. and how that's almost become, it's like a team activity, right? But it's almost like a group meditation that begins every day with this laborious process. <laughs> like oh, it's amazing. These things down. <laughs> yeah. And like, how about like the people that have to chop the, the cucumber and the daikon yeah. <laughs> for that one dish? <laughs> they spend all day just doing that, right? For that one dish. Yeah, it's extremely labor intensive. Um, but there's something about that that's beautiful. It's like so much heart is required to do that yeah. when you take it in there is some, I think there is something intangible about like that, that is impactful. One, uh, one of uh, the Buddhist monks uh, who was with us for, for this last year in New York, uh, his name is Toshio. And he said, he thinks that we should have the guests also grind <laughs> sesame before their meal. You should, yes, <laughs> yes. Here, this is gonna cost you an arm and a leg. Now go in the back room because you can't appreciate, how could you possibly truly appreciate what has gone into this unless you're actually doing some part of it, right? But, but you know, I mean, it's a, it's a wild idea, but when you, the, the sesame grinding is, is central to the cooking, uh, the Zen Buddhist cooking and uh, you literally sit on a floor on your knee for an hour and you're with this wooden pedal and you're grinding the sesame seeds uh, counterclockwise because on this side of the earth, everything in nature goes counterclockwise. And first of all, it's really painful to sit for an hour on your knees, like almost unbearable. It's mm -hmm. unbearable the first few times you do it and then it becomes sort of bearable and then to grind for an hour by hand is hard. And I th it's this meditation that's all, it's like passion. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, you, yeah. you really have to uh, work for it. But then when you're done, you're in a different mindset. And I think that's his point of having right. the guests participate right. in it. Right, that's the palate cleanser. Yeah. That's the required preparation to put you in the state of mind to receive. That's right. Appropriately. Wow. Um, we got to wrap this up because I know you got to go in a minute here, but I, I think a good place to kind of close it is to talk a little bit about the New York of your imagination. Like if you can continue to scale, rethink, and you start getting more 
invested in the communities that require food assistance? Like how can this transform this city and set an example for you know, the rest of the country in the world? Because basically what happens in New York, like then percolates out, like New York is the place from which culture emanates in so many ways. And you have this opportunity that you're taking advantage of to lead by example. So how does this, um, you know, how would you like the world to perceive this and how can people or restaurateurs or chefs or cooks who are tuning in for this, start being part of this solution as well? Well, I think the one thing to remember is that, you know, sometimes you get, when you hear the numbers of food insecure people in New York or America, Mm -hmm. the number is so big that you often feel like, wow, I'm uh, I'm not able to make a difference here. What difference does that make? Like the the number of food insecure New Yorkers during the pandemic was 2 million, Mm. 2 million people a day. And so we cooked 5,000 meals a day, which is a lot of meals. Just imagine the amount of boxes, trucks, everything, 5,000 compared to 2 million, it's nothing. Uh So on some days I was like, wow, we're never gonna make a dent into this. But then when you go into these neighborhoods and you're actually giving the meals away, you're realizing that every single drop matters and every meal matters. And so I think- It's not a drop to them. It's not a drop to them. And I think that's when, if everyone out there does what they can, the smallest thing matters. Mm -hmm. And in their community, there are amazing organizations all over and they're always looking for help. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are are plenty of other organizations out there that are doing, you know, this kind of work. I just had Maggie Baird on the podcast, who's Billie Eilish's mom. She's got an organization called Support and Feed. She's doing essentially the same thing. Jaden Smith in LA has his I love you truck. He goes down to Skid Row and he delivers plant-based meals. Amazing. But I feel like the power of Rethink is to create these organizational tools to establish efficiencies in communication and distribution so that all of the various people who are doing good work can align in a certain way that can, you know, establish the kind of scale required to address the problem, you know, in a in a macro meaningful way. I think using the infrastructure that already exists yeah. is probably the most powerful way we can actually uh, make a difference. And and in particular, if we can even uh, make the infrastructure stronger, because there are already funds a lot of funds going towards food insecurity, but a lot of the systems are so antiquated. Right. Some of these food banks and where the money goes to, it's just so antiquated. So I think uh, that has to be rethought too, yeah. where the money flows and, and, and using the existing infrastructure that can strengthen it. Yeah, good man. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure talking to Amazing you. I could go for two more hours. Here. I had I all know. these other things I want. I want to talk to you about your daily routine and what your <laughs> exercise looks like. I got lots of, so maybe at some point you can indulge me by a, a part two to this, but I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. No, I really appreciate to to you. I really appreciate um, it. What you're doing is, is, is meaningful, it's important. I was personally very impacted by my experience last night. And oh. if there's anything I can do to help you, I am at your service, my friend.
Thank you. I really appreciate it. Likewise. Um, once again, I want to thank Joe at Newstand Studios here at Rockefeller Center for providing the space for us to have this conversation. You can follow them at Rockefeller Center on Instagram or at Rock Center NYC on Twitter. And uh, until next time, my friend, you got to get to the restaurant probably, right? I do. So yeah, this yeah, is yeah. starting. Yeah, you're pretty mellow considering like you have to put on this crazy show every night. <laughs> it's wild, man. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Peace, plants. Peace. Yes. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.